Here we go. 2019. And now, coming to you live from the... Where are we? Oh, my God. Oh, from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6. It's Jonathan Strand, Gary Gilmore, on the Coot Street Podcast. And we're back with that guy after a long hiatus. Or Months. I mean, it was like World Fantasy. We were in Baltimore. We spoke to Andy Duncan. And we said, we are going to work like Trojans. We will record more recording than has ever happened before. And instead, we recorded nothing. But we had some really great conversations, which our listeners will never get to participate in at all. <laughs> no, con- I'm sorry, that's, that's not really quite the right way of putting it. No, uh, mm. but, no but we did all. stuff. I mean, I traveled home. Uh, I prepared the best of the year. Uh, you announced that the Library of America volumes are coming out next year, this year. Next year, September. Yes, no more next year, this year. Uh, and we, we should, both worked we on should, look. We, we, we should explain when we're actually recording this because okay. this is this is an odd, odd kind of recording. Because from my point of view, speaking to you on what is New Year's Eve in Chicago, this is the final podcast of 2018. However, yes. you and Australia are doing the first podcast of 2019. Yes, and you know what's going to be even more fun about it, Gary? If, you, if we're going to talk about chronology, what's going to be even more fun is that during this podcast. You will join 2019, and it will become the first podcast of 2019 for you as well. Not unless it goes on for a lot longer than oh, I'm, I'm thinking about New York time. It's not 11.30 there, is it? It's, it's, it's 9, 9.21 here at the moment. Oh, all right. By the, put this right. By the time this podcast comes out, mm-hmm. in a few hours, hopefully, it will be 2019 for you too. I'm It'll be 2000. I don't want to get back. Well, what do we expect in 2019? 2019, I noticed by sheer accident, without looking this up, will be the centennial year of Frederick Pohl and of Doris Lessing. There you go. Both of whom I knew. So now I can – that doesn't make me feel young at all. There's nothing I actually had feel young now, Gary. <laughs> no, no, I feel fine. I'm doing really well. <laughs> but I've been – Doris Lessing shouldn't be 100 years old. Fred Pohl – was basically 100 years old when I first met him 40 years ago. I mean, he's, he's just a guy who knows everything and remembers everything. That's yeah. okay. Um, but you're getting to the point where you're, you're in the centennial years of people you've had dinner with. That's not right. <laughs> it's better than not. <laughs> well, that's what I suppose. Well, you know, we should probably tell listeners, you know, the original plan here you know, a while ago was to plan – to work over our notes, to go back and forth, and to produce not one but two episodes that that would come out before the end of 2018. Mm -hmm. One would cover the best books of the year, and one would cover the books we're looking forward to in 2019. Unfortunately, because we're us, we didn't do any preparation for either of those things, and so probably you're going to get some kind of a mishmash. I would propose we could start talking about 2018, the year in science fiction and fantasy and horror and other stuff. What do you reckon? To the extent that we've read, one of the things that always strikes me about this year, about the because it comes up uh, with you as well, that we're asked to write uh, year in review essays for Locus, which compiles a lot of year in review essays, by which is a very good thing that Locus does because you discover that different people have read different things, and yes. so there are a lot of books. My, my, my big gap for the year, the, my gap, big gap for the last two years is that I've read none of the Dave Hutchinson Europe books 
which I gather are the most significant science fiction novels to come out of England. Like, in some you're an time. idiot. Like, you have to read them. I, I have to. Okay. You have don't to start, read them. Don't start with me. Don't start with me. Yes, I have. And to apparently, it's going to be a spin-off novella published by someone somewhere. I don't know where, but I saw hmm, Ian Mondor, um, James Bradley talking about it, and so mm-hmm. that will be worthwhile. But yes, you're correct that Dave Hutchison brought Europe, the Europe sequence, to a conclusion with Europe at dawn, and really, it's a remarkable achievement that is read and discussed far too rarely outside the United Kingdom. Uh, that seems to be a general problem with uh, uh, with European centric books, I guess. I mean, well, one of the things we've been boasting about with the American science fiction community is how diverse it is, and how we've begun to look at um, international science fiction for the first time. There was a Sushin Lu novel this year, also Ball Lightning. We're looking at uh, and there's a new Zen show novel coming up. So we're looking at you know Nigerian and Malaysian and Chinese, but but. But we're still about as provincial as we've always been in America about even reading British science fiction. There are major British writers who don't get published here. Some of those things, though, are artifacts of publishing and not of reading, you know. Oh, that's probably true. It happens that Dave Hutchison has been more successful in the United Kingdom, I would think. The publisher that he works with, or a good publisher, um, Mm -hmm. although they are distributed in the United States are based in the United Kingdom, and so probably a better place to promote and market his work there. So that's probably part of it. But there is, I mean, there's just so much work coming out, and the truth is as well, right now I think the kind of work that gets buzz is work produced, understandably, by younger, more diverse audiences, and Dave is neither, none of those things, although he is interesting in doing major work. You know, same could be said of Christopher Priest, who produced a novel that, to my mm-hmm. to my ear, got almost no discussion in the world, uh, an American dream. I and, and I've not seen that either. Um, uh, well, uh, you know, bookstores sell them, man. But uh, yeah, yeah, and there's controversy around that book. There's several uh, major British books that have quite a lot of controversy around them. We're not going to talk about them, uh, but you know, there's that. But anyway, let, 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 let's take a, a, a slight step back because once again we're rushing in. Okay. I want, I want your first, your perspective. It's like, here we are, you've written your year in review, you've uh, had a chance to think about it for a minute, and then to start to forget about it as hard as you can. What's your impression, if you have one, of 2018 in science fiction and fantasy as you saw it? Um, okay, this is going to sound lukewarm, because I'm going to say it was fine. There were some excellent novels there was. Uh, it struck me when I was writing the year interview. I say it was an extraordinarily good year for collections. Um, the, 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 some of the most powerful collections I've seen of, of the year came out from all kinds of writers. There was uh, uh, Vandana Singh's first collection, for example. Second. There was a Joel second collection. Yeah. Second. The first one was not very widely distributed, as I recall. Aqueduct, I think, maybe. It was a small thing, but it, yeah. yeah. So there was that. Um, there was a, uh, a Joe Walton collection. There was um, – let me just take a look. I've got, I actually have some things here. No, no, don't go into uh, your list yet. We're talking about what the year was like. Okay. It was, it, it was – the stuff that was good was really good. Uh, there were some outstanding novels. This is one of the few years where I could, without going uh, into too much de- – Defensiveness. I think I could pick out what I would have thought of as the as the science fiction novel of the year. 
Yeah, uh, we, we both have the same same pick. I think we both have the same pick, so we might as well tell everybody what it is. Sure, as far as I'm I, concerned, do you, do you want to do it, Gary? Go on. Oh, I want to do it. Um, I think the most extraordinary novel I saw last year was Blackfish City. Yeah, uh, if, you, if you said to, to you know, pick the Cood Street Book of the Year, which we've never done before, but let, let's let's do it now. The Cood Street let's Book of the Year, Blackfish City by Sam Miller. Why? For me, smart, well-written, entertaining, engaging, timely, politically aware, engaged with the, the whole anthropocentric changes we're mm. living through. It was creative. It was everything that... We need 21st century science fiction to be. It's an essential novel for right now. A lot of work had gone into all those aspects of it. It had interesting characters. It had some bizarre, surreal imagery, which you cannot forget the polar bears uh, and, and, and the, the whales and the, the various other oddball things that go on. And it was sophisticated in terms, in terms of gender, in terms of city politics, in terms of its treatment not only of obvious climate change things, but it's in, in it's, its treatment of AI. It's treatment of what uh, government and artificial intelligence might have to say to each other over the next several years. And it also dealt with uh, with urban crime and uh, and urban corruption. So it was it's not a naive, optimistic novel. No. Uh, but it's not a gloomy uh, disaster prone novel either. It's about an artificial city, you know, which has which floats in the Arctic um and has become a refuge for people from the drowned worlds or the, the sunken lands, I think they call them. Um, and within that context, it's one of the it's one of the best urban novels in science fiction I've seen in a long time. And its treatment of urbanism as a theme harks back to something I rarely have seen since the heyday of um, oh, let's say John Brunner. Yeah. There were elements of this that, for, for 2018, did similar things to what um, Stand on Zanzibar did 50 years earlier. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I mean, yes. I mean, and all the quotes on the back of the book, I think, actually are, are fair. You know, I mean, uh, someone called it a gorgeous, queer, muscular novel, which features mm -hmm. an orca and a polar bear, both of which are true. You know, yeah. uh, it, it's such an engaged and smart book. I genuinely hope that everybody, you know, you know, seeks it out. It has a fabulous-looking edition. I think it's probably out in paperback by now. Um, and I would be genuinely not shocked. I'd be appalled if it doesn't end up on the major ba awards balance this year. I think it would be, you know, if you want to set one of those litmus tests, you know, sort of the awards have failed. If this doesn't show up on the Nebula and the Hugo ballot, the awards have failed, Gary. I'd be amazed if it doesn't show up on, on both of them, partly because uh, the, this was not a year full of blockbuster novels. It's full of yeah. – uh, there, there are strong novels in it. Mm -hmm. Not many as unusual as this one does. For example, um, there was another novel I liked a lot, was John Kessel's Pride and Prometheus, mm -hmm. uh, which is a completely different kind of thing. It's a literary novel. Uh, it's It sounds like a mashup. It's an expansion of his story, which I think one uh, – couple of awards when it came out yeah um, it's a thoughtful philosophical extension of the frankenstein story and a thoughtful extension of the jane austen story which does everything that all the jane austen mashups we've seen so far fail to do it it, it, it respects jane austen's characters 
and her setting. And it somehow manages to mesh these two things together without really doing violence to either one. It was a very moving novel in a way. But yeah. on the other hand, it was something, it's something we know that uh, Kessel has been working on since the short story. And it's, um, it's a very special kind of novel. I wouldn't want to see a lot more novels try to do this sort of thing at all, but I thought he brought it off uh, very successfully. Okay. Do you have a uh, second? Okay, do you have a second novel? Given that I've got no list in front of me because it's buried in my email because we didn't prepare, uh, <laughs> I'd have uh-huh. to mention Cat uh, Valenti's Space Opera, uh, which is basically a vert where you know, humanity has to engage in a intergalactic Eurovision Song Contest to say to save our our place in in the in the universe. And it's actually enormous fun, really well done, as you would expect with Valenti, who's a superb writer, and a terrific book. Yeah, so that, book. I, I would mention that one. It's, it's a book I would describe, although I don't think I use this word, but frequently I think about words that I should have used to describe books after I've reviewed them. It's a book I would describe as ebullient. Valenti yep. is in love with language. She loves to have... Uh, some other reviewer said this, and I wish I had. Words are tumbling out of the basket like puppies. They're just a lot of fun. And the idea of using the song contest uh, as a means of saving humanity, the idea of humanity going through a test mm-hmm. to, to enter the galactic empire or be saved from destruction goes back all the way from before the Hitchhiker's Guide to short stories in the 30s and 40s. So it's not a new theme, but I'd never seen anything like the Eurovision contest and the songs then it sound like they're real songs. Yeah. Um, I do have, uh, the, the, we're getting in a shorter link there because uh, I was going to say I also have in mind, before we uh, leave the topic of favorites, I have a favorite novella of the year. <laughs> God, God's Mo- Monsters of the Giant Peach, by, or Lucky Peach by Justina Robson? Peach. No, Kelly Robson. Oh! <gasps> That was terrible. Oh, I have to cut that. Maybe I won't. <laughs> Hi, Kelly. Yes, what? God's Monster and the Lucky Peach, which I, I also loved and adored and was my, my favorite novella of the year. Yeah. Okay, what we're finding is a pattern here with the novel and the novella. We're talking about novels that do more than one thing. Um, the, the Miller novel is not simply an Anthropocene novel. It's not no. simply uh, a crime novel, although it's that. It's not simply a future city urban noir kind of thing. The Kelly Robson is a time travel story. It's kind of it's got some very funny, witty things in it about trying to write grant proposals and losing funding for what mm. you're doing. Uh, it's got a fairly interesting portrayal of a uh, uh, Mesopotamian emperor. Uh, it's got mythology in it. Uh, it's got again, it, 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 it plays interesting. Uh, plays with interesting ideas of gender. So we're talking about, uh, I think you and I both have a taste for novels that are not just one thing, but novels that are, uh, you you wouldn't, let me put it this way, you wouldn't describe God's Monsters and the Lucky Peach as a time travel story. No, no. Well, yes, of course it is. Yes, absolutely. You know, there, I mean, you could look at it that a scientist and a group of people that she's working with travel Mm -hmm. back in time to find the information they need to resolve climate change-related disaster problems. Right. And that would be a technically accurate description of the plot of the story, of the novella. 
it would ca- capture nothing of the feel of it, nothing exactly. of the energy, the joy of life that's captured in that story, and that makes it so engaging and so wonderful. Um, so yeah, you're right. You are looking for something more, something additional, something different when you, when you read. And I find myself looking for newer voices. I mean, this year I read uh, Ahmed Sadawi's Frankenstein in ba- Baghdad, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful, powerful book uh, set in you know, in modern in in modern U.S. occupied Baghdad where a young man is a scavenger is collecting body parts and stitching them back together to create a corpse so that the uh, he can force the government to recognize those parts as people and give them mm. a proper uh, burial it actually originally came out in 2014 uh, but was translated and published in 2018 and is just just a fabulous fabulous book uh, and would be one of those ones like at novel length, you know, alongside Black for City, be, be, would be one of those ones I say would, would say you have to seek out. I mean, there were mm-hmm. other books that were entertaining and enjoyable. C.L. Polk, Polk had a debut, mm-hmm. which mark a fantasy novel from Tordacom Publishing, who also published novels, and that's deli- just a delightful book, though not necessarily a immediately heavy or substantial book. I think we both regarded. Stan Robinson's Red Moon highly, mm-hmm. though you know it, it is, if you like, what you expect from from Stan Robinson. You know, a big, substantial, thoughtful book about the problems that are confronting us this time, set in the on the moon and around the domination of China in our future. So that was really mm-hmm. good. It, it was it was not the panoramic novels that we've seen in the past. It was focused essentially on a series of moon colonies. The moon is dominated by. Mm the Chinese government, a lot of it deals with uh, Chinese politics back on Earth, which, of course, at this point is inevitably intertwined with world politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it would be it would be fair to describe that as a moon novel, given the sense that the new generation of moon novels we've begun to see yeah. uh, from Neil McDonald and John Kissel are all essentially political novels. Yeah. In a sense, the moon novel, as defined now, is in, in some ways, all a descendant of the moon is a harsh mistress. And the reason yes. I mention that is because I think the moon is a harsh mistress was the first political moon novel. The one yeah. that basically treated that settlements on the moon the way uh, you would treat colonization uh, as it's been treated historically on Earth. And I think that uh, Robinson is as sophisticated a thinker as we can get about what moon settlements are likely to be, given what he's very reasonably assumed would be the Chinese presence there in another several decades. Definitely. Let me throw out another name. Um, yeah. Because uh, we mentioned novellas, and I already mentioned, okay, uh, there, were, there were some great novellas. Another one I liked, which was also playful and just a lot of fun, was um, Charlie Jane Andrews' Rock Manning Goes for Broke. Which isn't a 2018 story. It's not? It's a t- no. story was over. It's actually a amalgamation, an amalgamation of three short stories that were published a few years ago, with a very small amount of additional new material. So it doesn't, although it's great, and I strongly recommend people get a hold of copy if they can. It's not actually a 2018 new piece at all. Well, I say it's as a novella, it's a new piece. Then it won't be on the recommended reading list uh, because it's been it's been disallowed. 
Well, that's interesting. You could uh, we could argue about that. I had not thought about that because Charlie you could make... doesn't consider it a new piece. Okay, that's fine then. Then I'll go to my favorite novella writer of the year because she had two. Was Elietti Bodard? She had one. I'm just going to sit here and be a bastard. I'm sorry. Yeah, she so didn't have two. She had one. The Tea Master and the Detective? Is a novella, yes. And it was a wonderful book from Subterranean who did a beautiful package for it. It was smart and it was engaging. It was terrific. And you think about In the Va- Vanishes Palace. Yes. Which is a no- novel. At 55,000 words, oh. it is a novel. That's fine. Uh. <laughs> And it, is a... it felt like a novella to me. It was focused. See, I see. This is the thing. This is the thing that's always been a problem. And I used to get in arguments with my friend Charles Brown about this. Our friend Charles Brown, uh, and he would waver on this. We're looking at novella, novel, and novelette in terms of awards definitions. Charles would argue that a novella has a certain kind of si- single narrative arc which is less complicated than the multiple narrative arcs that work in a novel, but more complicated than in a short story. So narratively, it felt... I hope The Vanisher's Palace is uh, eligible for all kinds of novel awards, but I think in terms of its narrative movement, it felt like a novella. I don't agree very much at all. Uh, I think just because a story has a single dominant plot line doesn't make it like a novella. I was never convinced by Charles's argument and I remain unconvinced now. Mm. Uh, in the Vanisher's Palace, which is a powerful story of gender and politics in a science fantasy future retelling major fairy, basically a, a major fairy tale mm. through the interaction of a dragon and a human Interacting with an alien, the ruins of an alien invasion force. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it has that the, the, the sort of substance that you want at, at that kind of length, um, and really does deserve to end up. I mean, I, I hope it gets regarded the way it deserves to be, which is as a major novel for the year, because otherwise it's going to end up disappearing from all of the awards ballots, etc., that it deserves to be on. And since it didn't come out from a major publishing house, it would be easy for it to be overlooked. That's a problem. It is a problem. It's, um, it's, it's an interesting experiment. It was basically published by her agency, wasn't it? It's, ba- uh, it's basically self-published. Yeah, but uh, through the agency. Uh, it's, it's a very powerful thing. What interested me about the two long stories really long stories that she published during the year. Uh, they were both interesting and creative adaptations of very familiar work. I mean, Beauty and the Beast mm. uh, has been redone again and again and again. Uh, the Tea Master and the Detective was essentially a Sherlock Holmes story. Yeah. Uh, and w- it, it worked out very cleverly as a Sherlock Holmes story. It worked out as a mystery. Um, and Beauty and the Beast resolves itself in the way of a fairy tale. It also resolves itself science fictionally and all of it. And it's a very powerful post-colonial piece when you think about the fact that this is essentially a Vietnamese culture which is being which has been uh, profoundly affected by leftover technology by uh, aliens who came, occupied, and then went. That sounds to me, and I've said this to Elliot, like the history of Vietnam itself. I don't mm-hmm. think you can. 
that overtone. So they're both very thoughtful, complex rethinkings of earlier work. And that may be a trend. I mean, it's certainly not a trend that started in 2019, but there were a lot of sort of revisiting earlier works. Pride and Prometheus is another example of that. Sure. Uh, Theodore Goss, a uh, uh, European travel for the monstrous gentlewoman, another example of going back and revisiting classic characters. Yeah. Uh, I'd mentioned a couple of other British books that we uh, you know, ha- haven't really got to. Adam Roberts delivered the second uh, book in the in the series that started with, having the book escapes me, but by the pricking of her thumb, came out this year from Golas mm-hmm. and was fabulous. And Lavi Tidhar, who really has become one of our major writers had Unholy Land out, which I know you have read. I have. I thought I was very impressed by it because I think one of the things that Titter does, and the thing I've seen in his career is a kind of tension between very serious political thinking and playfulness. He loves pulps. He loves pulp plots. He loves pop culture. He loves uh, – basically tossing a lot of stuff into the stew. Unholy Land, which really deals with a possible alternate, well, with multiple possible alternate histories of what became Israel, has all that. It has a lot of playfulness in it, but it seems to me he's he's got the playfulness a little bit more under control. It's a, it's a serious yeah. novel. It raises serious ideas. Uh, it's got some devastating imagery in it. And the other thing which um, I admire about him is, to get back to length, it's a very efficient novel. It, yeah. it does what it needs to do. It could have been turned into a panorama. It wasn't. He actually introduces enough timelines. He could have turned this into a 500-page novel. I'm yeah. really glad he didn't because he does what he needs to do within the frame of the narrative he's created. Well, it's certainly true that most of the books that I, in fact, finished, partly due to time, but that I enjoyed this year were not long books. I mean, there were two fantasy mm-hmm. novels that I'd mention. Uh, Naomi Novik produced an absolutely fabulous retelling of Rumpelstiltskin in Spinning yeah. Silver, uh, similar to her, her, her previous book, which also was a kind of fairy tale retelling feeling sort of book. Yeah. A wonderful writer. I don't know that a lot of people had expected something as frankly substantial after the Temeraire books, which were entertaining and engaging. But these last two books, and particularly Spinning Silver, have been wonderful. And also, I mean, in terms of you know, looking at other material, I mean, obviously Spinning Silver with Rumpelstiltskin does, just as In the Vanisher's Palace does with Beauty and the Beast. Uh, Jeff what? Ford uh, jumped off um, uh, Moby Dick with his Ahab's Return or The Last Voyage, which was a marvelous book that I really, really enjoyed and would highly recommend. Another book which is um, turning back to a literary classic, interestingly enough, I noticed that 2019 will be the 200th anniversary of Herman Melville's birth, so let's bake a cake for that. But here's one of the ironic things. I was also looking, I was keeping an eye out um, for evidence of post-Trump books. And not that I want to see them. I don't think people should pay any attention to to, to current politics in terms of um, writing novels. I, I, I don't want to see political science fiction like we saw back in the 60s with Seven Days in May and so forth. But Ahab's Return, which just takes place in 1850s New York City and has a supernatural villain in it, also has a, a very severe critique of American racism, American know-nothingism, anti-immigration. It's, 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 it's as relevant politically as any of the novels we saw this year. 
And the, and the other novel which struck me as being uh, very timely in terms of its portrayal of a kind of political future was the uh, Charlie Jane Rock Manning book, which now I find out is actually a bunch of short stories. Yeah, that's right. Sorry to do that. I apologize. That was, Nevertheless. That kind. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, here's a link. Okay. Uh, what else, I mean, I actually didn't read much YA this year, which is unusual, though John Schofstahl had a terrific book out from Big Mouth Press from, you know, Kel- Kelly and Gavin, uh, who are basically small beer, uh, Half Witch. Wait. And Holly Black had a great book out, uh, The Cruel Prince, the, the first of a series. And I know you read Jane Yolen's Mapping the Bones. Which is not really a fantasy novel, but it's a very powerful Holocaust novel. And and, and Jane Yolen, she, Jane had a good year. I mean, she had a, a, a collection out from uh, Tachyon as well, mm-hmm. um, how, to, how to Fracture a Fairy Tale, which again is uh, somebody who's been doing this masterfully her whole career, looking at a whole bunch of fairy tales from either very serious uh, uh, perspectives of, of anti-Semitism, of the Holocaust and so forth, and sometimes just playfully. Uh, yeah. As in her sleeping ugly, and, and, and that's that's worth noting the, the how to fracture a fairy, fairy tale because uh, one of the funniest stories in the book Sleeping Ugly was actually published as a uh, children's illustrated book yeah. several yeah. years ago. Yeah. Uh, so 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 now now we get to read it as a short story for adults, which is yeah. which is enjoyable. There was um, also uh, a batch of entertaining first novels that came out during the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, the the C. L. Polk book. Witchmark, which I really did enjoy. Uh, mm-hmm. This past year at the various award ceremonies, Rebecca Roanhorse swept the right. field with her with her novella, her short story, and her debut Trail of Lightning came out this year. Kicked off a new series, very entertaining book. S. L. Huang, who is a, na- a name I pre- predict you'll hear a lot of in the future, had her first novel out, Zero Sum Game, which was a terrific uh, science fiction adventure novel. Uh, probably the highest profile first novel of the year, which was also YA, was Tomi uh, Adayemi's book, Children of Blood and Bone, which has mm. been sweeping major awards around the world for the last couple of months and is well worth everyone's attention. And obviously Rich L- Larson had his debut as well um, in Annex. Which was a, Sorry, I should have the title. Rich, well, Rich Larson's Annex was a, a, a novel based on... A, a, it's... it's it's a young adult novel written from his own perspective of himself as a young, a young adult, I believe. I think yeah. he, he combined a lot of things he liked about movies he'd seen, novels he'd read, and so forth and so on. It deals with an alien invasion and parents being turned into essentially puppet masters. Uh, and, 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 and essentially, even that novel, since we're talking about it, was sort of wound around the armature of Peter Pan. Um, yeah. Even The Lost Boys is part of it. Another first novel, I believe it was the first novel, because you can correct me on this, since you take glee in doing that, was sorry, a novel it's by... it's just this episode, novel, I'm sorry. A novel by your country person, Claire G. Coleman, called Terra Nullius. It is a debut, yeah. And it was... And it, it, I, I don't know anything about the author, I don't know anything about the antecedents for the novel. Um, it is a novel that appears to be about the colonization of Australia, but actually mm. is about an alien invasion. And or in fact, again, the other, way, the other way around, perhaps, that appears to be about the alien invasion, but actually is about the colonization of Australia. That, that's what's the Hall of Mirrors. It goes both ways. Um, it's, it's, it's one of the things that, if, if there's a theme that's emerging over the last, maybe not the last year, but the last couple of years, 
it is a theme of dealing with issues of colonialism. This has always been um, an issue that writers like Nnedi Okorafor uh, were concerned with. It's always been an issue that Alieta Bedard is concerned with. And I don't know if I've seen an Australian novel that treats the conquest of Australia in alien conquest terms quite the way this one does. No, not at all. No, it's, it's, it's a remarkable uh, book. came out here in 2017 uh-huh. and then was reprinted by Small Beer. And it's well worth seeking out. Very, really de- definitely worth seeking out. Yeah, we should mention that Small Beer had, I thought, I thought, a very good year last year. They had a ball buster of a year, yeah. They published some strong collections, some strong YA work, strong, strong novels. But, I mean... Uh, Kelly and Gavin have great taste. They know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the collections. Okay, this is one. I've got to. I've got to find this because um, they. They. The, the thing that ex- excites me is discovering a writer I've never heard of at all, and one of the writers that um, Small Beer showed to me was a writer named Abby May Otis. This is a name I had never heard of before until this collection of stories called Alien Virus Love Disaster, which actually has a story in it called Alien Virus Love Disaster, which actually has an alien virus love disaster in the story. Uh, <laughs> is one of those things where it, it, it more than anything felt like discovering Carmen Maria Machado the year before. Yeah. Somebody who knows genre, loves genre, likes to play with genre, does completely unexpected things with it, uh, and has a kind of um, really perverse sense of humor, which I, 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 I know that some of this has to do with the editorial taste of of Gavin Grant and Kelly Link. Sure, sure. They both have, they both have, they wouldn't mind my saying this, they both have a twisted sense of humor. And they find writers whose approach to literature, uh, whose approach to genre, whose approach to uh, the structure of a short story even, is... Both playful and very serious and very adventurous. So that was that was a name I will look out for in the future. Fair enough. I mean, it was a strong year for collections, but it, as I said in my year in review essay, Gary, um, mm-hmm. that's arguably you know for some years now has been the least surprising thing you could expect. Whatever else you would say about the short fiction scene, and there's a lot of things you could say about it, it is verdantly productive right now. There, yes. are, there is an endless supply of short fiction, and that almost inevitably means there must be an endless supply of high-quality short story collections, and this year was no exception. There were many, many, many so, ones. The uh, thing that became... Uh, hmm? Go ahead, finish your thought. Some of which you've not mentioned yet, um, and which really deserve mention. Uh, I mean, you mentioned Ambiguity Machines and other stories, the Vendana Singh collection, which is also from Small Beer. But mm-hmm. Agent of Utopia by Andy Duncan, which is Andy's first North American collection since 2000, mm-hmm. was an absolutely sparkling and remarkable book and essential for anybody. Uh, Jim Kelly uh, had The Promise of Space Out, which was a terrific book. Subterranean produced the second large collection of K.J. Parker stories, The Father of Lies. Uh, interestingly, Two of the best uh, collections of the year were by writers who have not had a lot of work out. Um, Priya Sharma had a deb- mm-hmm. debut collection out from Undertow called All the Fabulous Beasts that I would strongly recommend. And Kelly Barnhill, 
who won the World Fantasy Award a couple of years ago for a novella of hers, had a wonderful collection out called Dreadful Young Ladies and Other Stories. We should also mention, because it is one of the best collections of the year, probably, I mean, this whole top two, three, five, ten thing is kind of meaningless, but yeah. in that that cluster of the top, very top collections of the year, was N.K. Jemison's debut collection, How Long Till Black Future Month, which collected a batch of her earlier short story work along with four new stories, at least two of which belong in the year's bests, and which... I think really continue to establish continues to establish her if she's not already totally well established as one of the preeminent voices of the generation. Frankly, I think she's well established, but I think to some extent that collection uh, it seemed in a way surprising that it was her first collection because she made such a dramatic debut with uh, with these trilogies with large form uh, structures that you realize she she actually has played around with science fiction and fantasy forms. She's experimented. She's tried out different voices. She's tried out some comical stuff. She's tried out some ghost story stuff. Um, to some extent, I think this established her as a writer who can handle many of the possibilities of science fiction and fantasy and not just the long-form uh, structures that she's done before. I was surprised at the variety of work in that. And again, somebody who clearly took some took some joy in learning to write short fiction. And it was interesting because another writer who had, I believe it was her first collection this year, was Joe Walton, um, whose yeah. Starlings, which uh, combined poems and uh, and stories, was her introduction to Starlings was a little bit like N.K. Jemison's introduction to How Long Till uh, Black Future Month in that they neither one of them felt comfortable as short story writers. And yeah. then they learned... Yeah how short stories could inform the way they'd shape novels. They could try out voices. They could try out ideas that uh, that they might use at some point later. And then both gradually fell in love with the possibility they could write stories, which to me is good news because it means we'll be seeing, I hope, more interesting short fiction from both of them. You never know. I mean, it's always a bit of a kind of a gamble, particularly as writers become more successful. I mean, I think uh, Nora Jamison's actually had less time to write short fiction than than we might think. I, yeah. I know she's been working to complete a new novel right now that's based on an expansion of or whatever one of the stories that in, that's in How Long Till Black Future Month, which will be out oh. next year or so. I think uh, just to make a footnote to what we've said about short fiction is uh, you're absolutely correct that uh, there's a kind of golden age of short fiction going on, despite the fact that I didn't say that. Didn't say that. Oh, you just, Didn't say golden age. Not a golden age. Lot, no. Okay, forget about golden age. We'll talk about golden age when we get to Alec Navalny Lee's book in a minute because that's a problematical term in all kinds of ways. There's a lot of good short fiction coming out now, despite the fact that a lot of our favorite writers are under contract to write big things. One of the reasons I think the short fiction collection world seems so much more vibrant is that you have – a number of presses, we've mentioned Small Beer, we should mention Tachyon, we should mention Subterranean, uh, we should mention PS Publishing, who are more or less dedicated to bringing good short fiction collections out on a fairly regular basis. That's true. As, and, and some of them even in sufficient editions that they're available for more than one year. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of collections we've not mentioned that I really would like to get us in because I think they're important books for the year. Uh, Kat Valenti had, I think, her seventh or eighth collection, eighth collection come out, The Future is Blue, 
which is a terrific book, and the lead story is one of the best stories of the last decade, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and Caitlin R. Kiernan had the latest in the series of uh, collections that gather together stories from her newsletter, uh, the Sarinian Digest, a, story, a book called The Dinosaur Tourist. She actually had two collections out this year. There's Houses Under the Sea and The Dinosaur Tourist, both of which are essential, but The Dinosaur Tourist is particularly strong and particularly heavily recommended. And mm-hmm. the other one, which is a bit of an oddity because it's short fiction and art, is Sean Tan's Tales from the Inner City, which is a powerful, mo- mo- moving, touching, whimsical, beautiful, quite stunning achievement filled with gorgeous art and wonderful stories. I will mention one other collection because uh, we don't see too many of these. Uh, co- kind of a career retrospective collection. Michael Bloomline has been around for decades writing some powerful stories, me- frequently sort of published in the horror genre, but some of his most famous stories have been um, science fiction. And and he had a collection out also, um, which was called All I Ever Dreamed, and from Valancourt Press. And that was, uh, as, as many people know, maybe coming close to the end of his career, was a good look back at some of the most powerful fiction of the last 20 years. Yes. And since we're talking sort of short fiction-y stuff without talking about the short fiction scene itself, about which I have many thoughts... Uh, which I have actually gone into far too much detail in the draft of the year in review essay I've sent into Locus for the February issue, so we'll see if that comes mm. out. There are three anthologies that I think everyone should consider buying. They are overwhelmingly the best anthologies of the year as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. and they all have very, very strong work. Possibly the best anthology of the year is A Thousand Beginnings and Endings by Ellen O. and Elise Chapman. It mm. is a collection where a group of diverse authors of non from non-Caucasian backgrounds have been asked to retell Southeast Asian myths. Aliette de Bodard, Alyssa Wong, a whole bunch of wonderful writers are in there, produced powerful, interesting, engaging, contemporary feeling work. There's barely a oh, weak yeah. story in the book. A wonderful book. I recommend it very highly. Uh, Dominic Prisian and Nava Wolf who came to our attention as an editorial team with uh, the tw- was it the Starlet Wood two years ago, had their second book come out this year, Robots vs. Fairies, which basically takes the zombies versus unicorn structure that Holly Black and Justine Labellestier put together a decade ago or so and yeah. playfully engage with the question of science fiction versus fantasy. Along the way, Sean and McGuire, Jeffrey Ford, uh, uh, Lavi Tidhar, Annalee Newitz, and a whole bunch of other people deliver magical stories. Really, really wonderful work. And it wonderful. You should point out that despite the deliberate whimsy of the title, some of the stories in that are grim and powerful stories. It's a substantial book. It's a substantial book. It's 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 not a uh, it's not a, a it's not a smartphone game that you play. It's a real book. No, no, it, it sounds like a game, but it's or it sounds playful. And, you know, I guess in the best sense, the book is playful because it, it is entertaining. It is varied. There's different tempos, styles, approaches. Right. And that comes into you know, deliver a really worthwhile book. And I expect both of them to be on awards ballots, along with the other book I'd recommend, which is Gardner Dozois, The Book of Magic. It's the final original anthology to come out from Gardner. 
He mm-hmm. passed away in the middle of this year unexpectedly and very, very sadly and is missed by all of us deeply. But this book, uh, which it follows on from the Book of Swords last year, as if you like a swords and sorcery pairing, uh, features some really terrific stories. A major novelette by John Crowley, uh, mm-hmm. great work by Garth Nix and Michael Swanwick and uh, Scott Lynch and a whole bunch of other people. So that's strongly, strongly recommended as well. Let me throw in uh, a couple of historical anthologies since we're on anthology because those were, those were all they would have all been on my list had I had a list. I, I've got a list here of everything I reviewed last year, and I'm trying to go through it and find things. There's one. Oh, by the way, there's one novella in parentheses before we left that, which I believe you edited, which I think was one of the strong novellas of the year, which was Ian McDonald's Time Was. Yeah, I did. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's just a lovely romance. It's a lovely time travel romance. Old-fashioned in many ways, very contemporary in terms of the way its the way its narrative is structured, and it's kind of a heartbreaking story. Um, hmm. It is. It's a, it's a very touching story about two people who meet during the Second World War are, and are torn apart by the impact of technology, and who basically fall through time encountering one another at different times and it's about somebody who, enc- who finds them at, or encounters the fact that they exist and what happens as a result. It was a story I loved and I, I mean, I, as I think, think I said to you uh, I feel a little bit guilty because it probably should have been a novel but I like it very much the way it is. Oh, I think it's, a, it's, it's got a single narrative line so it's only a novella no matter what you do with it, so there. Fair enough. Okay, but, my two historical anthologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is... Uh, called Zion's Fiction. It's a historical anthology of Israeli science fiction. It's called A Treasury of Israeli Speculative Fiction, edited by Sheldon Teitelbaum and Emmanuel Lottom. And what interested me about this, first of all, the introduction by itself is a worthwhile essay on the history of attitudes towards science fiction in Israel and attitudes toward fantasy. Uh, and it addresses an interesting problem, which I've uh, I've seen addressed by other writers, including... Uh, including Lavi Tidar, who, of course, is in the book, which is that you have a tradition of storytelling which is immured in fantasy. I mean, fantastic literature has been part of the Jewish literary tradition uh, for centuries, Hmm. and yet attitude toward genre science fiction and fantasy, according to the editors of this, has been very skeptical, more skeptical in Israel probably than even in the United States or the U.K., the interesting thing about it from the point of view of earlier anthologies, most importantly Jack Dan's Wandering Stars anthologies from, what, 30 years ago or something, is that those were anthologies of Jewish science fiction. This yeah. is an anthology of Israeli science fiction. And the two yeah. things overlap a lot, but they're not the same. Sure. And the presence of Israeli politics, the presence of Israeli uh, of living in a country which is constantly under threat is ever-present in the stories in this. And some of them are mainstream writers that uh, have occasionally ventured into science fiction. Some of them are names that we uh, would recognize, like Lavi Titter. But most of these writers will be new to us. And some of them some of them are clearly uncomfortable with science fiction. Some of them are, have mastered the form. The other anthology, which is a historical anthology... It came from the Library of America, which, as you know, I worked with on other things. And it was uh, Lisa Yasek's The Future is Female, which is a kind of historical anthology of American women's science fiction from the early pulp era in the 20s 
up until the end of the 1960s. And she, I think, wisely cut it off at that point because yeah. she's trying to show how women writers have contributed to whatever was going on at that particular period. Not, it's, it's not an anthology of feminist stories, although there's some surprising feminist stories from the 30s in it. And there are people in it like C.L. Moore. There are people like, in it like Zena Henderson, who we expect. She also uncovered stories, really interesting stories, by people who just came and went. One woman who published three stories in FNSF in an 18-month period and then disappeared. So even though when I look at a historical anthology of uh, covering basically 50 years of uh, American science fiction, I figure I'm going to know most of the stuff in it. She found interesting stories by writers I've never heard of. And as I've said before on this podcast, I love finding writers I've never heard of. Well, one writer that you may never have heard of, and I don't want us to overlook because this writer is, on first of all, delivered one of the very best short stories of 2018, which I expect uh -huh. to be in every single best of the year. It's certainly in my best of the year. I expect to see it um, on, on awards ballots. Uh, the Nine Lives of the Negro Teeth of Thomas Jefferson, I think, I think it is, maybe. I have to look it up, the full title, by P. Jelly Clark, or Jelly Clark, uh, who had a uh, first novella come out from Tor.com called The Black God's Drums, yes. which is uh, an adventure with airships in an alternate New Orleans with a scrappy young teen, with all kinds of with ha with ha uh, kidnapped Haitian scientists and all kinds of interesting and wonderful stuff. Uh, Clark can really, really write. Has a second novelogy out from Tor.com in the first third of 2019. And I think we're going to be hearing a lot of him in the coming, you know, sort of five years or so. And he's going to prove to be one of the major new voices. I would be shocked if he didn't. Much as Tade Thompson, who had a, you know, a novella out a few years ago from Tor, has also gone on uh, with Tidewater and its coming sequels to become a major voice. I actually think it's interesting we've spoken about novellas and stuff, and we haven't talked about three incredibly popular series of novellas, mm -hmm. all of which had additional volumes, in some cases three in one case. There's the Murderbot series from Martha Wells, which had three yeah. new installments. There was the closing installment of uh, Binti from Nnedi Okorafor, and there was the latest uh, in the Wayward Children series from Sean and Maguire all of which were thoughtful and entertaining and worthwhile. We could move on to, I would recommend, two major nonfiction books of the year. I've got one, so oh. I shouldn't in, in, in uh, that, because I don't really read much nonfiction. So tell me all about it, Gary, though I think I know what you're going to talk about. Oh, you know exactly which two I'm going to talk about. One is the collection that Joe Walton did in Informal History of the Hugos. Okay, yep. Which from Tor.com columns. Uh, which we should mention, and I mentioned this in my review, and Joe mentioned it when we talked to her about it on the podcast, that there were a lot of very inform informed and intimidating commentary from, from both Rich, Harden and Gardner, Rich Horton and Gardner Dozois, whose memories of short fiction I envy endlessly. Joe went through and read most of the nominees uh, for the Hugo Awards since they began, there's some she simply didn't read because she didn't like them. She was very – as a reader, Joe is delightful because she simply will say, I can't read Phil K. Dick, so I won't. Uh, so there's some things she deliberately didn't read. Um, and there are things where she made comments and then, and then Rich and Gardner would, would add thoughts. The, the general conclusion, the, 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 the thesis, the question she began with 
was essentially, did the Hugos get it right? And the answer to the question, not too surprisingly, was more or less. The other book, which you know I'm uh, going to mention also, is Alec Novelli's Astounding. Uh, John W. Campbell, Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, L. Ron Hubbard, and The Golden Age of Science Fiction. Um, yes. Which is getting astonishingly good reviews, and to some extent, it's an excellent book. It's a very conscientiously researched book. He, he did phenomenal amounts of, of research into looking into census records and that sort of thing. I'm a little bit surprised at how well it's being received because the portrait it draws of Campbell, Asimov, and Hubbard in particular is not too attractive. Well, I think it would be fair to say that we are living in a time when people are open to hearing the unattractive truth about what has happened in the past. And certainly the book lays a lot of it bare without being uh, salacious or scandal-mongering or whatever else. It looks warts it all at the flaws of several of the great names in the history of our field and really makes it clear that they just weren't kind of people you want to hang out with very much. Well, part of the part of the research he did, which is not a research you would normally expect a fan or a science fiction scholar to look at, looking at letters, looking at diaries, looking at this sort of thing, he sort of restored the role of people like Donna Campbell, for example, uh, or people like Leslie Heinlein, uh, to to the roles that they actually probably played in uh, in, in in their husbands' lives, and, and they become significant figures, uh, as as Alec mentioned when he was on our podcast. Uh, Donya Campbell was the first neg- what they call suppressive person in Scientology. Yeah, yeah. She wasn't buying any of this stuff at all. And Campbell himself becomes more and more gullible. If there's a narrative arc, it's the tragedy of John W. Campbell, who starts out as an idealist, is a very good science fiction writer himself, sort of nurturing uh, Heinlein's career and Asimov's career and, and Van Vogt and other people that he doesn't discuss. And then just gradually goes off the rails with the thank, with the assistance of L. Ron Hubbard, who is pretty horrifying in this in this, in this, <laughs> in this novel because it it does read at times like a novel. That's all true. That is all true. Um, so you know, like I th- I think that's everything that I would recommend. There, there, there'll be other things inevitably that we have overlooked, as I say in. My year in review essay for Locus, I believe my, my views about the inherent instability of this, the, the short fiction market and field uh, without hopefully beating up too much. And we'll probably come back, since we've taken nearly our whole hour talking about year in review, to talk about new books for 2019 sometime soon. We may actually get one, another episode, episode out in the next few days or so. You never know, people. That's the kind of excitement we have. But, you know, it's it's an interesting time. I think next year will be, or this year, will be a good year. Uh, there's a lot of books I'm excited about and excited to talk about. Um, well, it's interesting. Back a, a year ago, and I have not listened to what we said a year, because a year ago we did a podcast on what we were looking forward to in 2018. And uh, I was looking forward with curiosity to some of these books, but I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that what I've ended up with is my favorite books of 2018 only marginally overlapped with what I thought I was looking forward to. That's probably fair. I mean, certainly there are writers that I've ended up loving books by. I, I didn't expect to love the Alec Navalny book about Astounding, or to admire it as much as I did. 
to the point where I foolishly didn't pick up a preview copy and had to buy one. Uh, you know, but I don't regret that. I, I, I was unaware of the existence of CL Polk. I'd barely heard of P. Jelly Clark. I'd not mm-hmm. read uh, Tommy Ad- Adayemi. Um, There's a lot of people. I'd, I'd not heard of Frankenstein Baghdad, I think, when I did the interview right up. So there's been a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad to have the, the opportunity to, to read it and to, to recommend it to people for, for the year ahead. And you know, like I said, there's a lot of other stuff. I mean, I have here half a dozen or a dozen 2019 books and another, you know, batch on my on my Kindle that I'm eager to get into. It's going to be a, f- a fabulous year. It will be, and I think one of the things that uh, I, I don't want to keep dwelling too much on the Alec Navala Lee book, but there's been a lot of discussion in the last few weeks uh, by by John Scalzi and others about a topic that you and I have talked about several times. Do you, do you need to have an entrance exam to read science fiction? Do you need to read the classic writers and so forth and so on? And the answer is, of course, no, you don't. You don't really need to read any science fiction in order to read science fiction unless somebody is writing a deliberate pastiche. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the things that Naval Ali's book points out is that if you look at the hit classic history of science fiction and acknowledge the problems with some of the fiction, some of the fiction which is now part of the folklore of science fiction, like Cleve Cardinal's story, Deadline, they aren't very good stories, really. Um, the, some, Asimov's attitude toward women was indefensible, his behavior toward women. If, if you acknowledge that, it puts the past in a kind of context and in a way kind of reclaims it. And I think in a weird way, uh, the Navala Lee book and the Lisi Asik historical anthology of American women's science fiction serve the same purpose. The past is not as simple as we thought it was. And, and nor is the present. I mean, you know, there is such a diversity. I mean, this is, this is why, in fact, you know, we, you know, we talk about golden ages. There's many reasons why I balk ever more at the idea of golden ages. But one mm. of them is that when you look with open eyes, some of the, a lot of the golden age wasn't quite what you thought it was. Different things were happening. The, the, the dominant narrative wasn't necessarily the entire truth of what was happening. It was just one story that was told out of a series of possible narratives. So it's interesting. And I should have mentioned, actually, there's another weird book that I came across. And I'm going to say that people should try and check it out. And I've got one other thing to say before we do wind up. And there's a book called The Best Asian Speculative Fiction, which was published mm. in Singapore. And although it's called The Best Asian Speculative Fiction, it's actually an original anthology. All of the stories are new or new translations. And if you can hunt it down, you have to go to jump on the internet and search around. Mm. Uh, it's worth picking up. Well worth picking up. But the it's closing... Sorry? <laughs> Is it the golden age of Asian science fiction? I wouldn't presume to say I'm, a, I'm uninformed, okay. but I'm well, heartened well, well, that, that well, we're well, in a position well, where we could well, ask that question. We're, we're at the end of the hour, but as long as you brought the issue up, I'm going to defend the term golden age in one sense and one sense only. Yeah. Not in terms of quality of fiction, but in terms of publishing windows. The golden age that Navali, the golden age that Navali refers to, from 1937 to 1950, let's say was a period in which serious writers wanting to write science fiction suddenly had a market, and it was mostly astounding science fiction. So in other words, a market had opened up for a certain kind of fiction, which by and large was more complex, more involved than what had been published before. Our mutual friend Robert Silverberg describes the 1950s as the golden age, because for people of his generation, 
that was when the book market opened up for science fiction writers. So there was an open window in the 30s and 40s for short fiction. There was an open window in the 50s for novel-length fiction. Mm-hmm. And the point of view of a writer in those periods, of course it was a golden age. You now had markets you could sell to. And sure. I think that you could make an argument that uh, a kind of golden age of diversity or a golden age of perspective is going on right now because there are a lot of markets available for Asian science fiction, African science fiction, Malaysian, Indian, and so forth. Things that are getting published in the United States, in the UK, in traditional markets are now more open than they were 20 years ago. It's certainly an interesting time. There is one thing that I'm going to try to make a theme of any podcast that I'm part of during 2019, whether there be 45 of them or 15. And I think right now it'd be fair to say we don't know which will be the truth. And that is, if you listen to this podcast and you enjoy reading something, if you are readily able to, I would exhort you to try to find a way to pay for it. If you can buy short fiction rather than get it for nothing, buy it. If you can buy novels rather than get them for nothing, buy them. And the same is true for reviews and everything else. It is absolutely proper and right that if you are not able to pay for them, that you take advantage of libraries and lending situations and everything else you can and free online fiction. And I would encourage you, and I would think every creator out there would encourage you to do so. But if you are able to pay for it, then try to, because every magazine that you, you, you like to read needs your support. Every online website that publishes fiction needs your support. The, none of these businesses, or very few of them, are dependable, stable businesses forever. If you want to be able to keep reading, buy if you can. And like I say, I'm not telling you off if you're getting it for nothing. If you can, then do I would add a footnote to that because I've seen this discussed a bit on Twitter and on Facebook. You say if you can't afford it or if you can only afford a limited amount, take advantage of public libraries. Most writers are perfectly happy to have you read their book to the public library. If you go to the public library and ask for the Book of Magic, they will know that there's a demand for that. So going to the public library doesn't mean you're you're, you're evading the market. You're helping to create the library market for these writers. Absolutely. Uh, and creators get paid uh, yeah. f- for library uses. L- library is completely legitimate. And, in fact, reading online for free is completely legitimate. What I'm saying, though, and I know you understand this, is mm. if you can, give that support. If you love that short story on Tor.com, consider buying the ebook of it. If you love, you know, that... Uh, story that you read on the Fireside website, consider buying their magazine, or Fires magazine, or you know, consider buying Locus or anything else, because that support will be critical to, to the health of the field, and to you as a reader getting the kind of things you want. So, Absolutely, and that's a good note for us to end on. Let us do that. Well, until next time, whenever it is, I shall talk to you again. We'll talk again soon. Next time, we'll probably talk about big books coming out in 2019, some of which are very major because you and I have both read a couple of them. So many of them. So many many of them. But as as a teaser for the next time, there is going to be a very major fantasy novel early in the year 
which will be pretty much unlike any fantasy novel that our listeners have heard. And I'm not going to say what it is until the next podcast. Okay, well, until now, until then, this has been and continues to be the Coot Street Podcast. <laughs>